This is Hebrews 2020. We see Jesus, and it is increment 227. If the Lord is willing, we will be meeting in our facility, which I affectionately call the Alamo in New Kensington, on August 7th, Sunday, August 7th. And until then, we will be doing some online messages, and that includes the ones I'm doing here in the next four increments. You will also be staying tuned for Brian Messick's message and messages, actually, on Christ and the Passover as he continues that excellent series. And we are expecting on the probably about the 26th or 27th hundredth anniversary, I'll have to get that exact, of... Ezekiel's vision at the Kabar Canal when he sees the throne of God on that anniversary, which happened in July 31st of 593 B.C. On that anniversary, Pastor Craig Brown will be bringing a special message, and perhaps it will be on the heels of his seeing a glorious vision also. So we will be hopefully meeting on Sundays in August while we keep our Wednesdays online for a while. But until then, I have 88 theses, T-H-E-S-E-S, 88, same number of keys on a piano keyboard, 88. In fact, I think I will write that up here, 88 theses that we have developed since the beginning of our Hebrews series, Hebrews 2020, We See Jesus. And these have all been developed and have emerged in our first seven chapters, the first seven chapters of Hebrews. So I want to recover all of these theses as a four-part series that will lead up to what we hope to be our next face-to-face meeting in New Kensington. So, Father, we pray that you will allow for a clear presentation of these 88 theses that have been developed in our Hebrew study, and may it serve to condense and concentrate and distill much of what we have received from the throne of grace, and from your kindness in Christ Jesus as we've studied Hebrews. And may it be to the eternal benefit of all who hear it. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So this is increment 227, 88 theses, and I don't know how many we'll get through. These will be in print and They will be in a PDF form for the website. But in between the theses, I'm going to be doing some sort of innovative commentary or spontaneous commentary in some cases, which may not make it into the PDF because they will be for audio and visual only.
And so, Father, we thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. The American Heritage College Dictionary, 5th edition, defines thesis, T-H-E-S-I-S, singular, as a proposition that is maintained by argument. A proposition that is maintained by argument. In my research and study in the past many years, I've been fascinated by theses in various theological authors. Examples of this, and I've extracted a couple of these, so that three of these, so that you can see what I'm talking about. Thesis 15 from Bernard Lonergan's book called The Redemption, five, volume 9 in his collection. So here's an example of a thesis, which is a proposition that is maintained by argument. In our case, it is what we would call upper blade data that's supported by lower blade data from the scriptures. So a thesis is what we might call upper blade data. Thesis 15 from Lonergan, and I'm quoting, Redemption denotes not only an end, but also a mediation, namely the payment of the price, Christ, the mediator's vicarious passion and death on account of sins and for sinners, our high priest's sacrifice offered in his blood, his meritorious obedience, the power of the risen Lord, and the intercession of the eternal priest. I think you can see why I selected this example to give us an example of a thesis. I selected this example because of its particular relevance to Hebrews. In fact, many themes of Hebrews, if not the main and salient themes of Hebrews, all emerge from this Thesis 15. In the appendix, the appendix of the second volume of R. M. Duran's three-volume masterwork called The Trinity in History, the third volume is only out, now, in fact, I'm expecting it to be shipped soon. But in the first two volumes, Duran lists 90 theses that were presented in the first two volumes. So he has done what I'm sort of imitating now in the first seven chapters of Hebrews. I'm going to give you Thesis 64 from Duran's list of 90 theses as an example. And here it is. And you'll note that some theses are only a sentence. Some are a very brief sentence, almost looking like a title of a work. Others are paragraphs long. Some are even long involved paragraphs, and you'll see that as in our own 88 theses as we go forward. But as an example of Duran's theses, here's Thesis 64 from his Volume 2 of the Trinity in History. Quote, The systematic understanding of the doctrine of the universality of salvation, notice that theme, lies in a development in the theology of actual grace. At least some instances of actual grace, as both operative and cooperative, 
are also sanctifying graces in the strict sense of the term, in that they include the infusion of supernatural charity. This is particularly true of those instances in which insights into the law of the cross and horizon-elevating choices based in such insights offer what Vatican II calls the possibility of sharing in the Paschal mystery. Now, I selected this example from this Catholic theologian to show that a thesis may consist of a paragraph and not just a sentence. In fact, Duran's thesis 65 consists of a single sentence, while thesis 66 in the same list consists of a paragraph much longer and more involved than the one I just gave you, thesis 64. But you can also see why I selected that thesis as an example, because of the themes that emerge from that. It's not just Vatican II that speaks about our participation in the Paschal mystery, of course. The scriptures themselves point to that. I'm much more a fan of what the scripture says than what tradition says. Karl Barth, not a Catholic theologian, but a Protestant theologian, I guess you might call him, in his multi-volume masterwork called Church Dogmatics, I've made many references to that recently, also contains many theses. I don't think he calls them that specifically. There's just a symbol before each one of these in throughout his works. But one that has attained particular fame, and rightly so, among students of theology, is his thesis in the election of Jesus Christ, about the election of Jesus Christ, in volume 2.2. And again, I think this may be the most famous thesis in modern theology, at least from Barth's theology. Thesis, I'll call it Thesis 33. It is numbered 33 in that masterwork. And here it, go, it goes like this. The election of Jesus Christ. The election of grace is the eternal beginning of all the ways and works of God in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God in his free grace determines himself for sinful man and sinful man for himself. He therefore takes upon himself the rejection of man with all its consequences and elects man to participation in his own glory. And I just noticed that between those two last theses, one from a Catholic theologian and one from a Protestant theologian, we have the theme emerging called participation. Those who participate in the Paschal mystery of Christ means that we are crucified with him. Those that participate in God's own glory are those who are, of course, risen with him, have ascended with him, and are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Oliver D. Crisp, a theologian in his own right, 
brings out the right emphasis on this particular thesis. In his article all in, in the book called All Shall Be Well, that was edited by Gregory MacDonald, also known as Robin Perry. On page 314 in his article, Chris says this about Barth and this particular thesis. What needs to be emphasized here is that Barth states that all humanity is derivatively elect in Christ. I like that a lot. All humanity is derivatively elect in Christ. No human being is outside the scope of this divine act. And as Barth himself makes clear later on in Christian or Church Dynamics, make that Church Dogmatics, Volume 2.2, on page 319, this statement, the only truly rejected man is God's own son. This is something we're going to be developing in a, an upcoming series when we'll be face-to-face, Lord willing, in this very place. Now, I consider all of these theses to be of tremendous importance for our time. I recall specifically while reading Duran's The Trinity in History how I would like to learn, I think it was a prayer wish, one of those things that comes from your heart and it's a a wish but it's also a prayer and God takes it as such, as a request. I remember how I wished how I could learn how to produce theses in my teaching. In other words, to come up with these propositions that really take in a whole cluster of doctrines and to develop from that and to teach in terms of a thesis. This is, it was my desire of my heart when I saw and admired how Duran did it. And I think, again, the Lord took that as a prayer. Would you teach me how to do these things? I recognize the great value of these propositions as what I call concentrated truths and propositions that could not only be sustained by argument but also explained by exposition. Very recently I realized, therefore, that during our study in Hebrews I've actually been developing the ability to form these theses and propositions and through them, though often rough-hewn in many cases, I've identified 88 in our study of Hebrews 2020. At this junction in our study, now that we've begun a second major section of the Hebrews homily, starting with Hebrews 8.1, and we already have made some inroads there, I think it would be profitable for us to list these theses and perhaps even to do minimal explications of them in some cases, not all. My main point is simply to list these because I did lift them out of my notes that began way back in 2020. And this is going to constitute a move toward the distillation of the homily. Remember, the way I do a book study is really three main phases. There's exposition, there's distillation, and then there's on the level of our own time. And these all mix up 
during the teaching, but they're also identifiable phases of any given teaching. Some of the theses that, theses that I'm going to express to you are single sentences, some very brief, some a little longer. Others are paragraphs. In some cases, the theses are nearly restatements of propositions already given, so you'll see some familiarity with them, or slight emendations or expansions. Now, I'm asking all of you who listen to these messages to please bear in mind that I'm only a beginner in the art and science of the thesis. The basic premise is that each of these theses will form a concentrated truth or a proposition which can be argued or explicated from the lower data of the scriptures or the lower blade data of the scriptures. As such, we may call them scripturally based concentrations of truth. For a thesis, you can put concentrated truth. The truth that is in Jesus is what we're concerned with, as Ephesians 4.21 puts it. Jesus, whom we see with the enlightened eyes of our heart, in Ephesians 1.18. So these propositions will not be listed, or as I'll call them, Thesis 1, Thesis 2, Thesis 3, etc., they're not listed in any particular order, though I've tried to enumerate them in the order in which they appeared or in which they were given or discovered in our Hebrew series. So I'm going to just hit the ground running here. Thesis 1. All of those who are physically dead are to be among those who are made alive in Christ by resurrection. And that's all of humanity, all of whom were imprisoned in disobedience so that God could have mercy on them all, that is, so that God could save us all according to his mercy. Romans 11:30 to 32, Titus 3, 5, 7, 5 to 7a, and not by a divine response to human works done in righteousness. Let me express that thesis again without scriptural documentation. In fact, sometimes I'm not going to give scriptural documentation within these theses because the whole point of the thesis is to be a proposition that can be argued by verses or scriptures. So I'm going to give you thesis one again. All of those who are physically dead are to be among those who are made alive in Christ by resurrection. And that's all of humanity all of whom were imprisoned in disobedience so that God could have mercy on them all, that is, so that God could save us all according to his mercy and not by a human response or a divine response, rather, to human works done in righteousness. Our salvation is not a divine response to any human works that we do. In fact, we're going to find... It's not a divine response to anything, but a divine initiation. Thesis 2. The age to come has come in the form of a cruciform livingness. That is a Christ-crucified-shaped 
life and livingness, informed and empowered by the Spirit of grace and of truth, sent by the Father at the request of the Son to be with us always and in us forever. I'll repeat it again, thesis two. The age to come has come, has come, in the form of a cruciform livingness, informed and empowered by the spirit of grace and of truth, sent by the Father at the request of the Son to be with us always and in us forever. Thesis three, this is an example of a rather extensive paragraph thesis. The love of Christ controls us because we have come to the judgment after reflection that if one died for all, then all died. Moreover, having come to this judgment and having deliberated, we've decided that from now on we will know no person after the flesh. No one is to be identified as one thing or another after human standards. But if anyone is in Christ, they are identified as the new creation in him. Furthermore, because we have determined that all human beings are to be summed up in Christ, then in one sense, they have already been gathered into him and are part of the Christological anthropology. One need not transition into one thing or another to find peace and to find oneself. One need only identify as Christ corporate and anticipate the transconfiguration which accompanies our inevitable glorification. A transconfiguration which also accompanies the reality of there being no former antimonies like Jew versus Gentile, Christian versus Muslim, Democrat versus Republican, woke versus prole or unwoke, slave versus free person, or female versus male. Thesis four. It is very profitable for us to see in the cessation of our works a termination of operation in the Adamic ontology that goes along with our solidarity with Christ, who from the cross ceased from his works in bringing about the new creation. The new creation is God's originally intended creation from the beginning and all along. Thesis 5, another paragraph Eternal and universal salvation is never in question for anyone or for anything in creation because of the righteousness of God, his saving act in Jesus, and in the spirit of grace. The question has to do with those who refuse to believe now in this life and who don't receive any benefit from hearing the gospel and the difference between them and those who have believed and do presently benefit by entering into the rest of God. By entering into that rest, 
we enter a present experience of the kingdom of God and a dynamic anticipation of it coming in its fullness. When Jesus appears a second time, it's the righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit that is that experience. Thesis 6. A major thesis of Bible cosmology having to do with creation is this. Creation should be understood in the light of redemption. The Redeemer is no other than the Creator. Katapausis, referring to God's rest, is a synonym for his at last being all in all. This is called the universal perichoresis, or circumincession, which is the mutual interpenetration of the triune God with all of a completed creation, a creation completed by redemption. The work of creation is finished only when the work and the effects of redemption are finished. The work of redemption is finished, but its ultimate manifestation is yet to be realized in a universal new creation. God's universal creation is to be the finished product of his creative and his redemptive acts. Now, though that is one thesis, thesis six, you can probably chop that up into several more or into several theses and develop them. That's not the point right now. I'm kind of giving you a rough-hewn 88 theses as a summation of where we've come so far in Hebrews. Distilled truths, concentrated truths. Thesis 7. Since the Word of God is living and operational in an ongoing way, we can easily surmise that it is vitally relevant and operational on the level of our own time. Though our specific historical situation differs from the situations into which the word was first spoken. Speaking, for example, of the situation of the so-called Hebrews in their time. Thesis 8. A single outcome of judgment means the salvific solidarity of all of humankind in Christ Jesus. On the one hand, this is comparable to the solidarity of all humankind in Adam, in that the solidarity is universal and diachronic. On the other hand, it is dissimilar to the universal solidarity of humanity in Adam, because the solidarity of humanity in Adam was merely temporal, but the solidarity in Christ Jesus is permanent and age-abiding. The single outcome of judgment is tied to the election of Jesus Christ as us all and his rejection for us all. Do we realize, therefore, and this is part of this thesis, how much has been fulfilled in Jesus? Do we know him? If we do, then we know him as reality itself and as the glorious fulfillment of all that God has willed for mankind and for creation. That's one thesis. Thesis 8. 
But again, you could probably develop several propositions from that one. Thesis 9. Here's a brief one, an example of a brief thesis that we came up with or that the Lord graced us with, an insight that he gave us. Thesis 9. Renewals within history require spiritual awakenings, not ideological wokeness. Thesis 10. The new covenant is better than the old. That word better is used in Hebrews 13 times. The new covenant is better than the old because it was confirmed not by the blood of animals, but by the blood of the Son of God, the priest and victim. In a sacrifice that has everlasting, diachronic, that is throughout all time, backwards and forwards and present, and universally saving efficacy. I'll say that again. Thesis 10, the new covenant is better than the old because it was confirmed not by the blood of animals, but by the blood of the Son of God, the priest and the victim, in a sacrifice that has everlasting, diachronic, and universally saving efficacy. Thesis 11. All real love comes from a pre-motion. That is a motion that begins, like dominoes being knocked down, it begins somewhere. All real love comes from a pre-motion of Jesus, the Son of Man. It comes from seeing Jesus and from conformity to him, especially in the moments of his dying, when he prayed, Father, forgive them. This is a thesis that develops also in line with Philippians 3.10, when Paul wanted to be conformed to Jesus Christ in his dying meaning in the love that was expressed by the Son of God in his dying, which was unconditional and universal. Father, forgive them. Thesis 12, another love thesis. For love to be completed, and completion is the main theme in Hebrews, for love to be completed means that it is demonstrated or manifested in both of its dynamic dimensions. Total love for God and unconditional and forgiving love for all of humankind, including one's enemies. Let me repeat thesis 12. For love to be completed means that it is demonstrated or manifested in both of its dynamic dimensions. Total love for God and unconditional and forgiving love for all of humankind, including one's enemies. Here's a very brief thesis, thesis 13. Christian perfection is completion in love. Christian perfection is completion in love. We know this from Matthew 5:48. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The reason for that, he is good and kind and gracious to both the evil and the good. He makes the sun to rise on the good and the evil. He makes the rain to fall on the unrighteous and the righteous. And so be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect simply means to be perfect in love. 
And as we know in 1 John 2, 5, he that keeps his word in him or in her, the love of God is completed or brought to its plenary manifestation. Another thesis regarding love, thesis 14. This is a good one on the level of our time. It's one thing to virtue signal and quite another to operate in virtue love. The love called agape, love in action and in reality. Thesis 15, another one on love. Love for God and love for one's neighbor constitute the plenary manifestation of love. That is the full gamut of its expression. And one's neighbor includes one's enemy. Because of the equal importance and inseparability of these two commandments, love for the name of God and the service of the saints are of a piece, meaning they are an inseparable solidarity. Thesis 16, a very brief one, in fact, maybe the most brief of all of our 88 theses is this, most of life is waiting. Most of life is waiting. And so, that has a two-pronged meaning, of course. Most of life is spent waiting, but also most of life, our life, is waiting for us, especially in future world. Thesis 17. Hope is not full assurance until it becomes perfectly certain of all that is to be hoped for of God's will. To stand complete and fully assured of all the will of God means not only to be perfectly certain of God's will in one or two matters about our personal lives, but to be perfectly assured that God has irrevocably determined to sum up or recapitulate all of created reality and redeem all of time and history in Jesus Christ, his Son. We are not standing complete and fully assured of all that God has willed unless we are fully assured and absolutely confident that the triune God has willed the restoration of all things. Now recently I commented about the fact that there is still the judgment of God. What I mean by that is, even though all of our sins were judged and Christ was the judged in our place, there is still judgment in the form of historical and temporal consequences. Historical and temporal consequences and a judgment involving them has a prime example in the events of A.D. 70 in Jerusalem. And therefore, this kind of judgment, the historical and temporal consequences of things, is also a judgment that has come upon the United States of America in our own time. 
whether or not those consequences will be extraordinarily negative to the point of even the loss of our nation as a national entity or its takeover by a belligerent tyranny and power from within and from without may be up to the realization on the part of Christians of the so great salvation that we have in Christ Jesus and the accurate, powerful, demonstrative proclamation of it. So that's what I'm giving you as an example of a spontaneous commentary on some of these theses. So let's let that be the end of today's message. And so, Father, we thank you once again. We pray that you'll rivet these truths home in our hearts, that they may live in our hearts and cause us to live in a way that expands your kingdom in this evil age. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.